Gresham College presents Professionally Green Environmental Challenges and UK Professional Bodies Good evening everybody and uh, welcome, to, uh, welcome to Gresham College. This is the fourth of my talks in a series of environmental, uh, on a series of environmental subjects and uh, this one's going to be talking about uh, environmental challenges and UK professional bodies and welcome particularly to those people who are, I can see one or two people in the audience who are actually uh, represent some of the UK professional bodies. So that's, uh, that's great. Um, I want to uh, talk to you tonight about these national organisations involved in activities intended to benefit, ooh, intended to benefit the state of our environment in the UK and internationally. And uh, as I said, I'm going to focus particularly on UK professional bodies, many of which have an, uh, either an explicit or implicit environmental remit. So I'm talking here, for those of you who are not, not so familiar with this, uh, with organisations such as the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, the Institute of Fisheries Management, the Institute of Environmental Sciences, and I will certainly mention some others later. Um, there are, of course, a range of other organisations uh, professional bodies that are less directly associated with, the, uh, with environmental matters, but also have some concerns. So, for example, those would include the Institution of Civil Engineers, uh, the Royal Town Planning Institute, and there are many others. We'll, we'll, we'll pick them up later. Uh, a point I want to make with this slide is that the, the, some of these groups are very large indeed, and uh, a conservative estimate of their total membership, as we've got on here, is something in excess of half a million people. Um, now, those people are mostly based in the UK. Some of the organisations have international memberships, usually uh, a minority. But I've shown up here for comparison the, uh, the membership of the main UK political parties, which even in total don't come close. Uh, and it's also worth reflecting, I think, that a 2010 analysis suggested that about 900,000 people have green jobs in the UK. So even if the membership of these professional bodies is, uh, is half a million, there's still some capacity for, for growth in that. Now, that size, of course, should be a good thing. It should be a reflection of the fact that there's wide public and professional interest in addressing environmental challenges in a, in a proactive and effective way, and indeed power to do so in, in the community. But I'm going to argue tonight that in the face of those pressing concerns that the current situation is unhelpful. Whilst the actions of every single one of these different groups are entirely laudable, of course, there are overlapping and competing interests, and those are not actually conducive either to the establishment of a clear position based on the best scientific and technical or other evidence, but in particular, it's not conducive to the presentation of a unified, a unified voice to government, industry, or indeed other uh, decision makers. Some people have gone further and have argued that these organisations are miniature fiefdoms, uh, primarily serving the interests of their members and secretariats rather than benefiting the environment, a position which certainly would horrify many of their members. And that is also um, a statement that's been made about other professional bodies, not just uh, ones interested in the environment. So in order to just explore that tension, the role of professional bodies in two specific environmental controversies, controversies will be discussed, 
I'm going to take the flooding of the Somerset levels in 2013-14 and the current debate on fracking. Now, uh, just to uh, pick up here as an aside, um, lest we think that public interest in environmental themes is collapsed... Oh, sorry. What's happened there? Managed to move on by itself. Uh, lest we think that public interest in environmental themes is collapsing, a poll by um, Comres this week, earlier this week, showed that an average of 28% of British adults would totally switch their political allegiance in May of this year in the national election if their party of choice abandoned their commitments to climate change. Now, the poll was, uh, the poll was commissioned by a consortium of voluntary bodies, including Oxfam and some of the other larger charities. And surprisingly, perhaps, even 77% of young conservative voters indicated that they were very or fairly concerned about climate change and could potentially vote in a different way though the figures were rather lower for older Conservative voters. The figures for potential Lib Labour and Lib Dem voters suggested that their concern was generally higher. And overall, 58% uh, of the 2,000 people who were polled said that they wanted to hear the leader of their chosen party make a strong commitment to climate targets. Now, that's, that's perhaps food for thought, even if statements in polls are not entirely accurate depictions of people's subsequent actions. Um, I should say, too, that that poll also mirrors my own analysis of the views of some 80 people working in various environmentally related professions, as expressed in, in structured interviews with me over the last 12 months. And I put the, the wordle here, just summarising um, their thoughts on critical issues for the UK. It draws out, obviously, the, uh, the key role of climate change in their thinking, but uh, also touches on some of the other areas of interest for example, so there's a strong interest in, in, in water-related challenges. I wouldn't, of course, hold this to be a representative sample. This is people already having expressed an interest in environmental matters. Now, I'm going to look at the Somerset levels, as I said, before drawing out some conclusions. And I want to start off by setting the scene by showing you some imagery associated with the event. beautiful pictures that we saw there contrast quite markedly with the sort of photographs that were appearing in the media at the same time, which show tended to focus more on the human situation. This is surely not an image that, uh, well, an image that many people would find rather disturbing. Um, the satellite images here simply show on the left that the situation before the event, uh, the red is generally reflecting drier areas, and on the right there, this is a, um, a NASA image, satellite image after the event, where you can see in the darker colours and the, and the greenish colours the areas of flooding, which are pretty substantial 
in this area of Somerset. And here we see a, a rather more uh, real colour uh, image. Sorry. Um, again, showing areas of black, but the lighter areas of green, areas of, uh, of water that were uh, rich in sediment uh, moving, through, moving through these rivers. Now, we've all seen, I'm sure, the sort of the, the stoicism of the, of the villagers if, when interviewed on the television, at least initially, followed by increasingly stressed protests as the water levels rose inexorably. And you'll probably remember, too, the rather moving sight of desperate farmers um, uh, moving livestock with assistance from across the country. And then the deployment of the military, we saw in the picture there. And senior politicians, I think, uh, senior politicians too, uh, and there's the Prince of Wales, um, some in very new Wellington boots, I, I hasten to say, um, uh, arriving to interview people. And um, uh, an almighty uh, argument developing between government ministers about what should be done, uh, done about it uh, after the waters receded. Now, that, of course, is a situation that's played out across the, the UK several times over the last few years, though in this case with some complexity arising from the local geography. Now, the background in terms of meteorology, weather conditions, is shown on the picture here. Basically, um, sorry, this thing keeps moving on by itself. Uh, basically, we had a, a wet uh, autumn, and much of the south of England received something in excess of twice the average rainfall for January. That's the, the dark blue and the black areas there. 200% of the monthly average, twice the monthly average, is not that unusual in a month, actually. But it was combined with storminess and high tides, and river flows were exceptionally high. The, the black on the, on the diagram at the bottom here for January, the black spots mark uh, areas where uh, the monthly flow was, was particularly high. Um, and, sorry, and the groundwater levels here, again, black spots marking very high groundwater levels. Um, many of you will know that the, the Somerset levels, of course, are an artificial human construct. Um, land reclaimed in the last few centuries from being a peaty wetland only some three or four metres above, uh, above mean sea level. So hence, it's, it's below high tide level. And under natural conditions, would periodically experience inundation either from the sea or from rivers. And historically, the settlements were located on little knolls of higher, higher ground. In the summer months, um, in the summer months dry grazing or, or cropland so, dry grazing or cropland traditionally was, uh, was maintained by uh, pumping, uh, and you see here huge pumps actually during the course of the flood event, pumping uh, first of all field drainage but then uh, groundwater and surface water up into rivers uh, and uh, drawing it down actually in the, in the grazing or the cropland areas. Uh, and then also deploying tidal sluices to keep out the, uh, out the high tides dredging and straightening the river channels and embanking them uh, to, uh, with, with walls. And there are lots of vocabulary associated with, uh, with Somerset, uh, Somerset's water arrangements, rhymes, for example, as drainage ditches and so on. So that's very traditional. And in the, water, in the winter of 2013 and 14, what happened, though, was that those measures in total were not sufficient to keep up with the water, amounts of water, arriving at the lowest points 
in the landscape from the higher moorland areas around. And we ended up with about 600 houses and about 7,000 hectares of land inundated. Now, that led to a series of allegations that what is described as routine maintenance of the channels of some of the local rivers, particularly the River Parrot and the Tone River, for those of you that know this area, that that routine maintenance had been neglected and that there had been sedimentation on the, uh, on the banks of the, and the beds of some of these rivers, which had reduced their capacity to accommodate high flows. Uh, there were other things too. There was a prosecution of two men for interfering with sluice gates uh, near Thorny Village, um, allegedly to protect their own personal property. Um, that case is actually ongoing. Part of it hit the, uh, hit the headlines this week. Um, but the point I'm making is that deliberate human action may well have played a small role in enhancing flood levels locally. Of course, that's not going to have affected the situation as a whole very significantly. Conversely, counter-allegations were made that more houses had been permitted by the local authority, sorry, there's one of our leaders in his new Wellington boots, um, counter-allegations were made that um, expenditure on routine maintenance had been reduced. In fact, the pattern is quite complex, and this is the subject of analysis elsewhere. Data here shows um, it was produced by the Association of Drainage Authorities, and you can see there were drops and then um, planned increases in expenditure for this year. Um, uh, so that's one of the things that was uh, to do with maintenance. The other thing, uh, the other counter-allegation was that um, the ha more houses had been permitted by local authorities or by the Secretary of State to be built on floodplains in these areas. And if you look at the, uh, the map here, the mapping done by the Committee on Climate Change, you see the area, um, you see the area here uh, the, well, the dark area in, in, in Somerset there, which indicates large number of houses um, built in the Sedgemoor area, uh, presumably in the, in the floodable area. So the allegation was that local people had, were in part responsible for bringing this catastrophe on themselves by choosing to live in increasing numbers on the Somerset levels. Now, some of you will probably remember the acrimonious debate going on between government ministers um, I can particularly remember Eric Pickles having a go at, uh, uh, at Lord Smith, uh, who was the, at that time the head of the Environment Agency, about this. And also a series of experts, mainly from universities and engineering com companies, offering their solutions to the problem. Um, I suppose I would say that the, the cacophony of voices was pretty overwhelming, um, instigated largely by the television and by newspapers. And the solutions that were suggested including, included lots of different possibilities. The first one, and the obvious one, was dredging, where we see that um, there are advantages and disadvantages. So on the advantage side, dredging is something that you can do quickly, you can be seen to be doing something, it's relatively cheap, and it's the traditional approach of the last hundred years. On the disadvantage side, Actually, most of the evidence suggests that, first of all, the uh, effect on increasing the river flow is actually quite slight, and sediment being delivered into these river systems very rapidly causes siltation and reverts the channel to the size that you had when you started, so that you then need to dredge again. So the ongoing cost is, uh, is significant, and in addition, this does nothing about sea level rise, 
um, and it's ecologically damaging. And for, you can see that uh, in the picture there, what the sort of thing that's, that's done. So that was one potential solution. And there were lots of arguments about that. There were others as well. Um, tidal sluice gates put across the uh, uh, Bridgewater, for example, at the Bridgewater Lagoon was another one. Um, it allows you to pump for longer because you keep the high tide out. Um, you, you let the water out at low tide. You keep low, low um, volumes inside the system uh, uh, and, and prevent seawater coming back up river. So that's another possibility. It gives you some opportunity to develop hydroelectric power, actually, as well. Um, and would protect against storm surges. And it's visible. That's another thing. Very important politically. You can be seen to have done something. Um, it's pretty expensive, though. And you get some ecological changes. So that's a second solution. Then you start to hear about solutions that involve managing the catchment more widely. So altering the vegetation in upstream areas in the moorland around the Somerset levels, for example, um, which you can do to reduce, at least uh, experiments have suggested, that you can reduce the runoff from restored moorland by um, <coughs> re re replanting, um, uh, preventing overgrazing and so on. So you're rest restoring more natural vegetation, ecological benefit and probably reducing soil erosion. Um, and you can allow public access, of course. On the disadvantaged side, it's not clear how this scales up. It's still not clear how this scales up. It's certainly been demonstrated at the level of small catchments. But as a means of reducing runoff very widely, it certainly would do something. But in very uh, extreme events, it's not clear the, the magnitude of the change. Um, we have some others as well. Uh, some people have suggested blocking the upland rhines in, in uh, uh, the drainage channels and holding back water right across the catchment. But actually that requires a lot of negotiation with landowners and big changes in the agricultural practices. You would get some ecological benefits. You probably would get some carbon sequestration benefits. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty cheap. It's not a high-tech solution. But it's untried at scale. Um, you can raise embankments. You can just build bigger walls along your river channels. Um, again, that's something that's immediately visible. People can see it being done. People can, um, uh, pe pe people can feel something's being done. Um, but again, there are maintenance needs. And one of the big things for me is that if you do that, you simply route the flood water further on downstream. Uh, I haven't analysed who that would affect in, in Somerset, but if they do that in up, upland, uh, upstream parts of river channels, the residents downstream are not going to be particularly pleased. So there's a knock-on effect. Um, you can flood-proof houses. Again, you can put individual flood-proofing measures, and I don't mean sandbags, which are universally useless, but again, something that's visible, and people, politicians in particular, like to see it, them being deployed. Um, but you can flood-proof houses up to the level of about a metre of water. Now, we're, we're on the margins of that here because some of the water was more, uh, more than a metre deep. If, you, if the water reaches more than a metre deep, the combined weight of it is likely, though, to demolish your house if you try and keep it out. 
by protecting the, uh, the lower parts of the walls of your house. So the strength of the house itself isn't sufficient to withstand the pressure. So that's problematic. And of course, it's, uh, you lose the use of the houses for a period and agricultural land is not protected. So you can let it flood and protect the houses, but you'll get uh, some associated challenges. And um, another solution widely suggested, you can have sacrificial agricultural areas. You can deliberately plan for some areas to be flooded and you can retreat from other areas. It's called managed retreat. It's a nice, it's a nice phrase, isn't it? Managed retreat, it sounds very logical. Um, you can just basically say, well, we're not going to do anything about these areas, these other areas, so don't live there. Um, there are some issues about that. It's actually not particularly expensive, but it's contractually challenging. Um, and there's actually not enough space in the Somerset levels, probably, for a full sacrificial scheme. So those are some pros and cons. Now, as you'll know, any of you that have uh, been to or listened to my, some of my earlier lectures, this is a typical wicked problem, a problem where you've got poorly formulated situation, you've got interconnected physical and human dimensions, you've got... Um, things being done in one place that influence what happens somewhere else. Um, you've got lots of different stakeholders who don't agree about what's important, who use the terminology in different ways, and who, who wouldn't agree if the problem had been solved. That's a very typical example of wicked problems, as defined by uh, Rittle and Weber in the 1970s. And there are further things, actually, more recently, um, to do with wicked problems, where time is running out. Uh, and I'd put into the equation here something um, which I haven't mentioned in this context before, which is, which is climate change. So the situation is actually getting worse, and some of the people involved or the central authorities are rather weak or, or, or non-existent. So, and short timescales, of course, as well. So these are very typical wicked problems, and we know that from all the research, all the evidence suggests that the solution to wicked problems lies in some form of structured dialogue. Now, it's perhaps too soon to see whether that form of structured, di structured dialogue is happening in the case of the Somerset levels, at least in a rational way, and the immediate intervention that happened was dredging. That's what happened. Now... What I want to turn to now is what about the professional bodies? What were they doing uh, in this area? Well, I, I want to review in a minute how they work and their detailed functions. Because in theory, professional bodies are lar these large groupings of people who know something about what's going on, theoretically offer the possibility of cutting through the complexity. Um, and orchestrating some kind of coherent and informed response to this situation so that government can hear the voice and be measured in its approach. There are large numbers of people, as I've said before, and mostly well qualified. So what happened in this particular instance with the professional bodies? Well, the next section really reflects my personal views based on my own role at the time as chair of one of the umbrella organisations, which we'll hear about later. But I just want to say at this point that this situation generated amongst the professional bodies and continues to generate a very large amount of heat in the discussion. Actually, I would say rather little light, but an awful lot of heat amongst those who became embroiled in it. 
As the drama unfolded and experts began to appear on our television screens, some of the professional bodies began to try to make group responses to government, but others did not. Now, the Landscape Institute, and we'll hear from Sue Illman in a minute, who, who, was, uh, who was the president of it at the time, the Landscape Institute was one of those bodies who were concerned to try to bring different groups, different professional bodies and stakeholders together. And in late January 1914, uh, sorry, 2014, um, the Landscape Institute coordinated the writing of an open letter asking for action by government to be based on evidence, not assertion from government ministers, which wasn't helpful. This letter was signed by representatives from 15 of the professional bodies and widely reported in the media. She also spoke in the media about the need for a multifaceted approach that was aligned, in fact, with the government's own policy, as expressed in the Flooding and Water Act of 2010 and the Natural Environment White Paper, and for her pain, she was roundly criticised by representatives from other groups. Let me, let's hear what she says. In terms of flooding, I really don't think that we have approached solving the problems of flooding in a logical way. Quite clearly, the only way to look at it, if we're going to look at the big-scale problem, is to look at the way we manage our land and the way that we manage our water, all the way along catchments from where it starts in the uplands right down to the coast, and look at what the solutions are every step of the way, how we can build resilience, how can we improve the situation, how we can retrofit, and what we should do every time we stick a spade in the ground, whether it's to dig, grow food, or build buildings. No, we're absolutely not doing that now. We're doing very piecemeal things. We're in denial about the impact of certain activities, particularly farming, agriculture, and some of forestry. We, we don't understand that um, dredging only solves siltation problems caused by bad management practices. So no, we're not getting it and we're not joining it up. Now you can see there Sue Illman, the president of the Landscape Institute, making an appeal, a cross-sectoral appeal for joining up different groups, different approaches and different people. She mentions the foresters, she touches on the role of farmers, engineers and so on. Now, at the same time as this was going on, um, Society for the Environment, which is, a, which is an umbrella organisation that brings together 23 of the constituent, uh, has 23 constituent environmental professional bodies, um, also tried to coordinate a response, but the chief executive officer at the time felt unable to progress it and didn't, in fact, make a response. And the reasons for that were quite interesting. In some cases, when the constituent bodies were consulted, there was overt hostility to notions of collaboration amongst the professional bodies. In other cases, some of these bodies said that they, their own organisation wasn't explicitly concerned about flooding, and they didn't want to join the debate. Several of them said that they were too small and under-resourced to consider responding. And tellingly, I think, some of the organisations said that some of the potential solutions that were being discussed would disadvantage the economic position of their own members, those involved in dredging, for example, which was being criticised by some of the other organisations. Now, that's a difficult situation to be in. 
a number of professional bodies also, particularly the larger ones, also evidently made separate and individual responses to government and only revealed their activity to fellow organisations afterwards. A number of organisations did make, in subsequent months, did pr produce their own analyses and suggestions about responsibilities, but the time delay in that case was significant and the situation had died down a little in public consciousness. Now, what we're seeing here, I would say, is a communication chaos. Um, it's hardly to be expected that government would hear the balance of professional opinion clearly, and presumably they listened mainly to those with the loudest voices and the best links. I would say, in particular, that it's not uh, a situation where one could be at all confident that the proper engagement of stakeholders in decision-making, characteristics of which include things like inclusivity, transparency, learning, efficiency, efficacy, and legitimacy um, would, would pertain. How do you know whether you have consulted your members and you are expressing a legitimate view? Is it transparent so people can see how this view has been arrived at? Have you learned from the situation and indeed previous similar situations and reflected that in your response and so on? I won't I won't go on through this, but there are a number of, of, of learnings here which should be taken on board when making an account uh, and, and reporting. And it's not apparent in this situation that that happened at all. Now, let me just look at professional and other bodies, similar organisations, in a little more detail. Just reflect on what might be done to improve the situation. Professional bodies are one set of a number of rather ill-defined groupings who want to influence decisions and action on the environment. And the wider group includes the people on here. So it includes things like NGOs, voluntary bodies and charities, trade associations, learned societies, livery companies, and some government departments and agencies, but I'm going to ignore that latter group tonight. Now, the first group... The, the national environmental charities and voluntary bodies are in some ways the most interesting and diverse of the groups, and there are some, certainly hundreds of them operating in the UK at, at national level and probably thousands at local level. I'm going to give you a sort of subliminal um, listing. I'm going to go very quickly. You'll see some you recognise, others you don't. Others will be missing altogether. These are in alphabetical order, roughly. Um, everybody will have their favourites, I'm sure. I've got the Green Party on there. Uh, not quite sure why, but we'll come back to that. Uh, classification difficulties in a minute. You see, I'm still going. I've only got to I. All of these organisations have at least a national office in the UK. I like red squirrels in South Scotland, which has a national office. Um, one of my favourites here is on the left. I love the idea of the Tortoise Trust. Um, campaigns against illegal collecting and trade of tortoises. Um, the one on the right is just an example of one that has a much more radical um, agenda, Earth First. Um, talks about promoting direct action, uh, gives some very interesting information on the website about all sorts of interesting activities, including how to drive a digger, which would presumably come in useful if you were involved in sabotage or tunnelling. 
um, which are also suggestions for things you might do. Um, there's another one here I find interesting, which is deep green the deep green resistance movement. Uh, it's difficult to find out what they do, but they propose direct action and uh, moving towards, in fact, social revolution. Um, this one says... Um, their goals are to deprive the rich of their ability to steal from the poor and to stop those in power from destroying the planet. So this is, a, this is a, a revolutionary agenda. So we've got a very wide range of approaches here, and uh, in this case, just an organisation that loosely coordinates, uh, presumably, revolution. Now, I'm going to leave you to judge where the UK professional bodies sit in this sort of spectrum from what I've called congeniality to revolution. But if we review them, they have a number of purposes. And I'm going to... Um, Adam's in the audience, so forgive me, Adam. I'm going to uh, uh, make you listen to him saying what the purposes are. are. The IS supports its members through a number of different initiatives. Uh, number one, it really works with uh, knowledge sharing, so um, helping our members learn the latest science. We do that through our publications, uh, through events and conferences that we run. Number two is really by um, helping our members network with each other, bringing them together in different forums. The third thing that the IS does is represent the sector, um, and that's to external stakeholders, things like government, uh, education partners, and the civil service. The fourth thing that the IS does is act as an umbrella for a number of different smaller professional associations and initiatives. Uh, one of those is the Institute of Air Quality Management, we also have an education arm and a sustainability arm. The final thing the IS does is work on professional standards. We do this through our own membership structure, but also on externally validated qualifications like chartered environmentalists and chartered scientists. Now, that's, that's a summary which would probably apply to most of the professional bodies, but the balance varies from one professional body to another. So here's a, here's a, here's a second chief executive talking. As the Chartered Institute of Architectural Technologists qualifying specialists in architectural technology, our members are in a key position to work with communities, local authorities, end users, builders, to take on the technological innovations required to affect better communities, tackling issues such as water requirements, flooding issues, because of their very nature. Discipline. So there are different emphases. Uh, most of the professional bodies are concerned to ensure high standards of professional practice, as uh, Francesca Berriman said there, but very few actually operate a license to practice. It's not like um, some of the medical professions where you have to be <coughs> qualified to practice. You don't in this area. But there are at least 40 different uh, professional bodies there's some of, the, uh, some of the phrases that describe what they do. I won't go through all of them, but uh, organisations which represent the interest of the professional practitioners is an interesting one. Um, varying down to a group promoting research that underlies the profession. So there's different, different emphases here. And, and as I said, 40 different ones. Some titles on there, but there's too many to take in. Um, some of them we've heard, heard, some of them we will hear, and uh, others we can't touch on today. Now, super, superimposed onto that set, we've got other 
types of organisations. Very quickly, we've got learned societies. I'm sure many of you will have heard of learned societies. They're usually promoting a particular academic discipline. They often have royal patronage and a stronger emphasis on, on research. So we've got those. There's a few of them. I'm sure everybody's heard of the Royal Society, um, the Royal Geographical Society, perhaps some of the others as well, the Zoological Society of London, for example. So we've got those. Uh, another set of organisations. We've got a third set. We've got livery companies in London, at least. Um, livery companies with environmental interests. There are actually hundreds, more, more than 100 London livery companies, very ancient routes, um, uh, but with very good connections into the city. Um, and um, uh, uh, stronger social element, uh, in fact. Uh, the, some of them have got great names, haven't they? I like the fruiterers. Um, to the, uh, the one I know most about, the one I'm a member of myself, in fact, is the, 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 the Water Conservatives, and uh, that has a remit which, in some ways, is not dissimilar to some of the professional bodies. It talks about promoting the interests of the, of the discipline, uh, informing the government and the public, um, promoting the advancement of education, and then the, the social, uh, social environment at, at the bottom is very important. Um, so that's livery companies. And then we've got trade associations. And at this point, I'm, you're probably losing the will to live. Um, we've got, uh, I just put one up here. These are organisations which are not focused on the, on the individual, but the group, the, the, uh, the, the particular company, usually, or the particular uh, uh, association of companies. And um, again, um, there are many, as I said, probably hundreds with environmental interests. Now, this plethora of organisations, you can think about them in overlapping sets, and I'm sure any of you that have ever studied anything to do with um, the environment before will be familiar with the three-set Venn diagram. There's always three sets in a Venn diagram, you know, three overlapping circles. This, this is the rather elegant, I think, depiction of a five-set Venn diagram. It takes slightly more interpretation, actually, but just to take a, an example... Um, it positions types of activity. So, for example, we see here, if you pick up um, uh, charter ships towards the top of the diagram, there's only a couple of these groupings of five that actually offer charter ships. The professional bodies do, and then we see that some of the learned societies do. They're in the, the overlapping area at the top. Similarly, on the left there, charitable giving. Many of the livery companies actually give direct financial assistance to people who were in the profession, uh, and clearly some of the NGOs do that as well. Um, but I think if you focus on the middle, you'll see every single one of these groups is lobbying government. So if you add up the total number of people, I, I lost count when I was trying to uh, deal with trade associations. As I said, it's hundreds, hundreds of trade associations. There are probably close to a thousand organisations lobbying government, more or less independently, on environmental issues. Um, now, uh, a, range of the, uh, a range of the CEOs of the professional bodies, a further range, kindly agreed to talk to me briefly about their own institutions. And I want to pick up just three short examples. The first one is the institution 
Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, which somebody um, informed me earlier that I inadvertently gave chartered status to on the, on the, on the Gresham website, which was unfortunate because they don't have it and they're probably wildly upset by that now. But um, let, let's, um, let's just hear some little bit I think about from what they the do. Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment perspective, one of the things we recognise is that in order to support environment professionals being really effective in organisations, be they their private or public sector organisations, then we have to work in partnership with those organisations so that they recognise the, ch the, the environment and sustainability challenge and therefore the need to address this agenda and therefore invest in building organisational skills and capability to affect change. So that's that one. Here's another one. The Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management has gained a set of objectives there. But let's hear uh, the head of policy. I think the role of an organisation like the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management is we have a very broad remit in terms of the environment. We are able to bring together experts who are ecologists, who are flood engineers, who are water resource engineers, and so on and so forth, who can really appreciate the widest challenges that ultimately have so many interconnections. And if we can consider all of these in the round, then we can ultimately uh, advise on what are the best, most sustainable solutions. And the role of professionals in bringing together the evidence base to make the case to do that is really important. We do not have uh, a particular agenda. We are thoroughly independent and we solely exist to improve the management of the environment. Let's take one last one, the Chartered Institution of Ecology and Environmental Management. Uh, again, uh, recently had a, a royal charter, so it's awarding charterships in its own right, chartered ecologist. Um, hear Sally Haynes talking. Chartered Institute, or SAIM as we call it, uh, provides professional membership services to ecologists and environmental managers working in the UK and Ireland. We promote high standards of professional practice, we share knowledge uh, and information amongst the practitioners, we provide training, uh, conferences and guidance for our members and for others, and we, in, in, and we input into government policy and guidance. Generally, I'd say government has to be pushed um, in this area. The environment is still seen by many as a luxury. Uh, perhaps the link between a healthy environment and a healthy economy and a healthy society are really not truly understood. So it's pushed, I'm afraid, rather than leading. So some different organisations there. There are others, as we've said, if we picked up the... Chartered, uh, sorry, the Institution of Civil Engineers. They have similar sort of remit, very strong environmental stance in their in their material. Now, that's about what they do in general terms. If we look at the range of disciplines that they cover, um, seeking to simplify the situation somehow there by sort of focusing on that, we again end up with a lot of complexity. Uh, I've taken a diagram here from the um, uh, Quality Assurance Agency, which is the body that oversees university courses, and um, it's trying to, this particular diagram was used up until last year, to try and capture 
the, different, the relationship between different subject areas. So you can see their geology, earth science, environmental science, environmental studies, and then round the edge all sorts of things like physics and chemistry and biology and medical things and law and so on. Um, and I positioned on there just one of the bodies. There's the uh, Institute of Fisheries Management, which has a small, it's a very small organisation with a focus particularly on fish and fishing. Uh, and you can see its interests span water resources and biodiversity and risk protection uh, and a little bit into probably countryside management. Um, by contrast, if you looked at the Institution of Civil Engineers, they've got a huge span of interest going right across from the earth sciences into mining, physics, environmental technology, uh, and so on, geosciences as well. Uh, and then here's another one, the Landscape Institute. You heard Sue Illman talking earlier. Um, they are landscape architects, and their interest sits somewhere down here in the kind of art, design, vegetation, landscape science, probably environmental health areas. Okay, now... Um, the point I want to make here is, again, we've got a rather confusing picture of overlap, duplication, and effectively competition for territory amongst these professional bodies, almost all of which actually are saying that they're moving from their principal focus into areas with a broader remit at the moment. Now, when that situation has happened, uh, uh, sorry, and, and we could summarise um, just uh, uh, in this way, I think. I tried to summarise in general terms the, the balance that these different professional bodies are seeking. And I, to, sum, to simplify in some regard, I said, well, really, they're concerned with furthering the interests of individual professionals, promoting and protecting the profession or the subject, generally, and safeguarding society at large and the public interest. So that's, that's a balance. It uh, plays out differently into different, uh, into different areas. But that middle one, um, there is an issue for every one of them about what is their subject area, of course, as we saw on, on the previous diagram. Now, when this kind of complexity and competition amongst different organisations has emerged in the past, there have often been mergers of institutions. The diagram here has one error on me. It's actually on the right-hand side. It's the, in, it's the evolution, in this case, of the Institution of Engineering Technology. And if you look over on the right-hand side, you'll see that in 2006, it should say Institution of Engineering Technology. But if you go back through history, you can see many different organisations merging in over a long period of time, particularly in the later part of the 20th century. If you go back to the 19th century, you've got things like the Volcanic Society, which is very exciting, and, and the Society of Telegraph Engineers. And they, over time, they grew, they developed, they merged, they grew. And what we've got here, as an example, uh, is of now a very large and very powerful organisation uh, with a very large voice and very authoritative in the engineering professions. That's not happened with the environmental organisations. And in fact, what seems to be happening is almost the reverse from more groups emerging over time, which is making the situation uh, more and more complex. In fact, I, I think I would capture this by saying that I think the environmental sector, I, in the environmental sector, I don't think there could be, I don't think I could imagine a more complex arrangement of competing organisations uh, anywhere in the world. And this is just in the UK. Um, Everybody's aspiring to generate environmental improvement. They overlap in their remits, their legal structures, 
and in their academic foci. Some are very niche and specialist, some are all embracing. They compete for money, for membership, for subscriptions, for audiences, for attention, for status, for influence, and in terms of the messages they're putting out. And that's why people other than me have described some of these organisations of fiefdom as little fiefdoms, unaccountable, and mainly supporting the interests of their staff and individual members, rather than acting in the interests of the wider environment. Now, that may or may not be a fair assessment, and I'm not going to offer you an opinion on that, at least now. But I want to ask if we think this is a potentially effective arrangement for securing the ear of government and generating the best opinions on environmental interventions. I'm going to conclude by just looking briefly at the subject of fracking, where there's a very lively current debate going on. This is fracking in Wyoming in the US. It's an area where some of the professional bodies are expressing interest, and there have been debate at a number of levels on environmental grounds. Now, probably everybody here is aware that fracking is the process of extracting fossil gas from shale deposits um, for use as a fuel. Unlike the gas fields under the North Sea, the, this gas is trapped in rocks with very low permeability and very limited fracturing. So these deposits have to be fractured by high-pressure injection of water and chemical mixtures, which releases the gas, which is then captured and cleaned and fed into the grid. Now, the debate occasioned by the prospect of this has been very heated, and there's a lot of controversy. The controversy centres over a very wide range of issues. It's, again, it's a wicked problem. There's the moral hazard occasioned by the development of fossil fuel, even if less carbon... Uh, atmospheric carbon is emitted than from other fossil fuel sources such as coal. There's the environmental impact of transport to and from the sites and of the drilling. There's the potential for damaging pollution by leakages of toxic waters. There are visual amenity impacts, including light emission from flaring gas. There's damage to wildlife. There's seismic problems, small earthquakes. There's noise and there's dust. Now, for some commentators, the future energy security is the overarching priority, together with the opportunity to generate wealth from selling gas and to reduce the cost of energy to UK residents and businesses. And I am certain that there are professional bodies with environmental interests in the UK who would make that point, that very point, that energy security is an overwhelming interest. For others there is a need to increase the speed of the move to a low-carbon economy in line with climate change targets, and that is supreme. And then there are local residents in areas identified as having potential resources, whether or not they're currently inside or outside national parks and so on, that are also quick to voice opinion. And to date, none of those have been, no local groups have been positive about this. Now, what I would put to you is that this issue is surely one where all of the environmental professional bodies have a legitimate interest and should be able to add constructively to the debate, optimally through collaborating. And there are, as I've said before, umbrella bodies that could help to broker this, Society for the Environment being one. I want to allow um, somebody from Society for the Environment just to speak briefly. The Society for the Environment really has two roles. 
One is actually running the Register of Chartered Environmentalists. And the benefit of this is that it gives professional status to experts in the environmental field. And the other job of Society for the Environment is really to coordinate opinions between the various professional institutions so that they can find common ground. Well, they range widely from, for example, organisations where the main focus is the engineering world, other organisations at the other end whose uh, main focus is ecology or forestry or water issues. So a a very broad spectrum of environmental organisations. Okay, so what's being said there is that there is an umbrella body with a remit to coordinate representation externally to government and so on. However, in the case of fracking, and I'm not pointing the finger specifically at Society for the Environment or indeed any of the professional bodies, some of which have made statements about fracking, but I've not yet found any synopsis that explicitly draws together the views from more than one professional body, despite the fact that the views of environmental professionals, all environmental professionals, as we saw from my wordle at the beginning, are overwhelmingly reflected in concerns about climate change, and almost every professional body mentions this somewhere in their aims and objectives. Most of the professional bodies, not all, but most, have drawn back from an expressing an opinion on fracking altogether, in some cases despite vocal pressures from some of their members. As we saw in the case of the Somerset levels, some are unable or feel unable to express an opinion because they're too small to have sufficient time for an analysis. We do know that one or two of the larger bodies have recently input opinion to the UK Environmental Audit Commission, uh, Audit Committee's Environmental Risks of Fracking Inquiry, and the Institution of Civil Engineers did, for example, last month. And it commented on the necessity of environmental safeguards and permitting and environmental impact assessment and so on. But they explicitly noted that they wouldn't comment on the implications for carbon emissions. And we can only draw our conclusions about the people who are in ICE about why they wouldn't be willing to do that. I'm sure they aren't alone in fighting shy of expressing a comprehensive view. Because alone, as a single professional body, they're not well placed to do so and they risk alienating some of their membership. Perhaps that's just another challenge that's too, just too wicked. Now, I'm going to leave the last word on professional bodies with, um, with uh, one of the CEOs who's talking about revolution. And I just ask you to hold in the back of your mind um, the earth first, uh, um, what was said about revolution and direct action there. Uh, this, uh, this particular CEO is talking about the sort of people who might be well-placed to lead such a change or revolution in the way we think about and act on environmental issues. If I was to put forward my manifesto for why an organisation like the Institution of Environmental Sciences has an important role to play in society, I'd ask you to think back on the Industrial Revolution. Now, you often hear environmental scientists talking about the need to have something equivalent to the Industrial Revolution to meet some of these environmental challenges. And when you look back at the Industrial Revolution, you see that it didn't happen through public consent. No one went out and asked the small farm holders, the cottage industries, if they wanted to amalgamate in big cities and to have a technological revolution. 
what happened was there was a small technocratic class that decided it was in their best interest that this happens. And I suspect that any environmental revolution will happen in a similar way. It will be the professionals that deliver on it. And that's not, very, that's not a very comfortable viewpoint for some people because they think it should always be public-led. You know, the campaigning organisations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth are the important ones. But I can't think of a revolution that's happened in history through public consent. I can certainly think of ones that have happened through a technocratic class making it happen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.